Guardian Unlimited. Assalamualaikum and welcome to another sunny edition of Islamophonic, the last show I do before I go on holiday. Today we talk about radicalization and sex. I'm going out with a bang, not a whimper. The defense think tank Rusi held an understanding radicalization workshop last week. It's particularly relevant during a spate of high-profile terror trials involving British Muslims. I went along to see whether academics and policymakers could shed light on why Muslims become radical. Sheikh Musa Admani, a chaplain from London Metropolitan University who works to deprogram radical Muslims, thought environment and settings were key to creating terrorism. Susceptibility is not confined to young people. Contexts and situations, settings and the environment play a bigger part. You have to work from your audience's reference point from their perspective, from their starting point, you have to enter their territory, become them. Only then you can change. However, Bill Derodi, a senior lecturer at Cranfield University's Defence Academy, thought differently. He said people spent too much time inventing reasons to explain terrorism, projecting their own pet prejudices into what he saw as a vacuum. Commentators are almost excusing the individuals concerned from the actions that they took. It's almost as if we're desperate to find an excuse to explain why they did what they did. What we find are individuals who were not particularly pious, who were not that engaged with political debates about what was going on in the Middle East. These are, in my own words, fantasists, wannabe terrorists, who, looking for some sense of identity and meaning in their lives because we have failed to provide them with it, are joining on to some concept of some global ummah uh, and some jihad that really has no connection to them, but expresses and explains to them their actions, their anger, and why they do what they do. With me in the studio is Brooke Rogers from the Centre of Risk Management at King's College London. Hello, Brooke. Hello, thank you for inviting me. You were one of the speakers at the Rusi event. Was there a general consensus about what creates radicalism? Um, there was. I think the majority of us were actually struggling with the issue of what can be done at this point. And there was a lot of discussion about finding the tipping point, which is basically the moment or event that confirms radical thoughts in an individual's head and sets him or her onto the recruitment path. But most of us think that at that point, it's probably too late to intervene. Right, okay. Um, however, we did have other speakers like Sheikh Musa Advani who said, you know, they're on a journey of doubt. We can intervene. So mm. I think he had a very positive message. But the, what the majority of us were looking at were issues of what can be done in the community before they hit that tipping mm. point. Is there an agreement about a way forward? I mean, you said that that's what you were struggling to... Um, there is, um, in terms of the question about what can be done, I, I think that we actually had quite a lot of consensus um, amongst the speakers and in the audience. Um, for example, Bill DeRody suggested that um, we should begin looking at our own world. And I do think that he was highlighting environment. Um, that clip is Bill going off on one of his, um, he likes to rile people up and he actually gets them quite engaged. But he does say that we need to look at our own world and our own confused culture in the UK. And we need to come up with alternative social messages and choices for individuals who might be susceptible to mm. extremist messages. So we need to give them some other options, community options, social options. 
Um, and in order to address the issue of radicalization and homegrown terrorism, there was a general consensus that imams and community leaders need to work in conjunction with government bodies and mosques to unpack some very complex issues of culture, mm-hmm. ethnicity, and finally to really focus in on education. And that's education of spiritual leaders, educators, and also education of the general public. Was there any sense that Muslims themselves need to be better educated about their own religion, maybe? There was an interesting discussion. Um, I don't think everyone in the room was entirely comfortable with whether or not permits should be issued for imams, let's say, um, almost like a teacher education certificate. I think that's a very complex issue that will be much, much, much further in the future and should be addressed um, at an, on an organized and cooperative level. But even from the um, the Muslim speakers, the Muslim representatives that we had, there was a feeling that um, education of the imams, let's say, could be improved, language skills sometimes, mm-hmm. um, which would then improve the education of the public. And I think that... Um, Education was seen as the key to addressing a number of problems where a challenging education is actually seen as a way of giving the disaffected youth the power and the character to challenge extremist ideology when and if they come into contact with it. Now, I said earlier that the Rusi event was especially relevant in the current climate of trying to understand why Muslims become radical. But pipping Rusi to the post in the serendipity department is Penguin, which has just published a book called The Islamist. The book by Ed Hussain describes his time as a member of Hizbut Tahrir. My interest in Hizbut Tahrir came at a critical time. At college, there were others who were also coming under its influence. From outside, Hizbut Tahrir members ensured that our interest was not a passing phenomenon. There were seven of us, all members of YMO or sympathisers, who wanted to know what Hizbut Tahrir was really about. Wahhabis have put out information that the group was deviant in creedal matters. Many in the East London mosque believed that they were Shiite, and Sunni Islamists believed them to be infidels. Arab Islamists familiar with the Hizbutariya from the Middle East suggested that they were American agents. But who were they really? I'd liked what I heard from David about Bosnia. His refutation of Madudi's Islamism had been pungent. Omar Bakri at the London School of Economics was the only speaker who offered what seemed like a practical solution to the conflict in Bosnia. Now... I wanted to make up my own mind. Ed popped in to see us at Islamophonic to talk about his literary debut. I started by asking him what the main point of his book was. My book is an attempt to put clear blue water between ordinary mainstream Muslims and those who claim to be Muslims but in fact have an agenda that's about being more than Muslim. It's an agenda they call Islamism, which is a political form of Islam designed in the, in the post-colonial Middle East and post-colonial India, underwritten by Said Qutb and Maududi, and it's being propagated here in Britain in the name of it being Islam, but to my mind it's not just Islam, but it's an ideology and it's Islamism. Who's the book written for? Primarily it's written for the, the wider British audience. because Non-Muslims. Yeah, it's written for a wider British audience in order for us all as a country to understand from where this terrorism, this extremism stems. It's now, I think, the time to take the debate out, out to the country and to create pressure on Islamist organisations to you know, go native. You're in Britain, it's 2007, there's no point in trying to impose an agenda taken out from the Middle East in the 1950s. I mean, the question on everyone's lips is after crevice and now we know more about the 7-7 bombers as well, is why? Why is this happening? It's, it's a complicated problem and I think we should all try and avoid sort of giving 
straightforward black and white answers to this, but many of the people who are becoming radicalized and becoming extremists are doing so thinking that they're being ordinary Muslims. They've been exposed to that Islam introduced to Britain by uh, people like Omar Bakri, Abu Qatada and others in the 1990s thinking it's genuine religion when it's not. It's a politicization of of the Muslim tradition. Secondly, there are you know thousands of young Muslims out there who just don't feel like they belong to Britain. Britishness, and now with all the sort of confusion surrounding what it is to be English and Welsh and Scottish, and the whole convoluted class structure that we have here in England, and you know dress code and accents and taste and food and entertainment, it's very convoluted, it's abstract, and it's difficult for young people who are children of immigrants to identify with all of that. And then on the other hand, you've got Islamists coming along and saying, well, it's, it's, it's quite straightforward. Could have been his book says Muslims are just that Muslims full stop there's no need for an identity or a nationality if, if anything you're part and parcel of a global Muslim community and that brings its own baggage and its own problems foreign policy does have some role as well that underpinning that sort of association with you know a mythical ummah abroad whenever Muslims are attacked there's a sense of belief here that that's unjust and it is unjust but there's a way that there are ways of dealing with that injustice rather than you know going down the road to terror What's the solution? Is there one? For starters, we need to ask ourselves here in Britain, are there limits to freedom? I believe there are. Individuals who advocate an Islamist state in the Middle East that's got what they call a foreign policy of jihad, committed to destroying Israel, removing Arab governments and then turning the guns on the West. And it's in their literature. That sort of rhetoric needs to be stemmed today and now. To stem the problem, I think we need to go to the source of it and outroot organizations such as Hizbut Tahrir and others who advocate this. Other things that we need to do include defining what it means to be British. There's no point asking Muslims to integrate when integration and what we're supposed to integrate into hasn't been clearly defined. I mean, you ask Muslim, well, integrate. Well, integrate into what? Still with me is Brooke Rogers from King's College London. What did you think of the book? Um, To be honest, uh, I quite enjoyed it and I did a very quick read. I was excited to get it this week. But I thought that Ed Hussein managed to convey his passion and belief for a variety of Islamist ideas and also the way in which he fell out with Islamist ideas while simultaneously injecting a sense of humour as he described the way in which like the Wahhabis took over Tower Hamlets College from the YMOs, changed the views of his sisters the sisters that he had tried to convert to Islam and had and actually made them unobtainable or untouchable to both Ed and his companions. So they were sitting there going, wait a minute, we started this, these are our ideas and they're going even further than we are. I also thought that the sheer frustration of the situation, the description and the way in which his generation was stuck between two cultures confirms much of the work coming out of the Rusi conference that radicalization is based upon a search for identity and that's basically the foundation of social psychological theory, the search for identity. Um, In terms of explaining the way the pathway to terrorism and violence works, I still feel that there are many questions left unanswered by this book. I still don't feel that this book provided new answers or information on the radicalization process, but it did shed some light on the ways in which organizations with radical links infiltrate the educational system in Britain. Wow. Okay, well, thank you very much, Brooke, and good luck with your research. Thank you. There's no clever way to link radicalism to sex, although you could argue that candid discussions on both are frowned upon in polite society. I imagine it would be harder still to talk about sex if you were a headscarf-wearing woman in Egypt with your own talk show. But could such a person exist? Of course she could. Dr Heba Kotb is that rare thing, an Egyptian sexologist with a show on primetime television. Once a week, the big talk is beamed out across the Middle East to the delight of some and the consternation of others. 
السؤال اللي بيطرح نفسه دلوقتي ومش قادره الحقيقه اهرب منه يعني اشمعنى دلوقتي ظهرت على السطح والحقيقه بتساله كمان كتير اكليب فروم ذا بيج توك وير دكتور هيبا اكسبلينز هاو جلوبلايزيشن اند ذا انترنت هاف تيرند سكس ايديوكيشن انتو ان ايجيبشن هوت توبيك During the program, she answers questions from the public on subjects such as ejaculation, oral sex and the best sexual positions. I spoke to Dr. Heber earlier this week and asked her why it was so important to talk publicly about sex. Well, it's very important to talk about sex because uh, nobody could deny that sex is part of our life, uh, whether before marriage or after marriage. Before marriage, we tell them about what sex is. and how to control our very strong desire towards having sex and towards thinking about sex what kind of questions do you get from your viewers i'm always inviting people to uh, well if you have any question about anything just go ahead and pose it because they find nowhere to go and nobody to ask and they just go to the websites which, which are not very good they present like very wrong information very untrustful information so what do imams and sheikhs in egypt have to say about your work are they happy about it well yeah but not all of them well i received some sheikhs and imams and uh, they admit about what i'm uh, saying and what i'm doing and they are all encouraging me even on air and sometimes other sheikhs heard a lot of things against my show and they say that well it's revealing it's like encouraging people to have sex well that's not right i mean i encourage people to have sex within the marriage bond and i always always mention this during my show listening intently to that interview was islamophonic favorite lukman ali a relationship counselor and scholar he's a man of many hats and today he's wearing his sex hat We also have the Guardian's commentator and writer on Middle Eastern affairs Brian Whitaker whose interest in Muslim sex will become clear very shortly. Thanks for joining me in our studio. Hello. Hi. Brian, what do you think of Dr. Heber's work? Well, I think it's a very interesting development because uh, as far as I can tell, a lot of people in the Middle East still go to uh, religious experts for advice on sexual matters. And I suppose this goes back into history uh, to the times when the local imam was probably the most educated and wisest person in the neighborhood but i think uh, life has got a lot more complicated since then i mean we've had a lot of research into uh, sexuality and psychology and all this sort of thing and really there are probably people who are much better qualified to give advice these days look man from your work with muslims in this country what are their attitudes towards sex The overwhelming attitude to discussing sex in public is one of uh, extreme uh, reticence and uh, prudeness <laughs> if you'd like there isn't a great degree of uh, of, of discussion of, of sex in public what you, what I what, what I was listening to from Heber is very good the lack of really frank dialogue public dialogue about sex leads to all sorts of problems um, sexual repression leads to actually perversion of sexual practice and so on and so forth. So uh, it's really, really quite heartening. Brian, you've written about Islamic clerics debating what is and isn't allowed. Can you tell us some more about your research? First of all, it's, it's very curious uh, what Lukman was saying because there is this reluctance to talk about these things in general. Mm. But if you look at Islamic websites, there's quite a lot of stuff and it goes into really very explicit detail in a way that you often wouldn't do in a in a polite conversation the other thing 
really is that there are all sorts of different opinions which are all supposedly based on scripture or uh, the hadith or interpretations of uh, various practices and so on. Uh, there was one last year, a great debate in Egypt about uh, a cleric who had said that people should keep their clothes on while having sex. Uh, some people thought it was hilarious and, and other people, you know, <laughs> uh, thought that was the right thing to do. Again, I mean, you find uh, clerics, particularly from Saudi Arabia, fulminating against masturbation, for example, and they really tell some very strange Victorian kind of stories about uh, making, pe making people go blind and all the sort of myths that we've uh, heard in the West but generally discarded a long time ago. And you see these uh, cropping up on websites by Islamic scholars who basically are making fools of themselves. What does Sistani have to say about this? I understand you quoted him. Well, Sistani... <laughs> yes, um, Sistani uh, tends to be uh, a bit more liberal in some of these matters. In fact, some of the, the, the Shia, I think, are, are more flexible in terms of sexual rules than, say, the Sunni Wahhabis. Uh, he... Uh, posted a fatwa about anal sex, for example, mm. saying that it, it was permitted but not terribly desirable. <laughs> right, OK. Um, look, man, for the sake of argument, can you just talk us through what is taboo and what isn't? I think, really, you cannot generalise because even within one school of thought in mm. Islam, there's a, very, there's a variety of opinions. Brian talked about the Shia school. In the Shia school itself, there's a variety of opinions about anal sex, for instance. Some say it is forbidden. Others say it is intensely abhorred. Even in oral sex, uh, the spectrum of, a, of, of, of Muslim scholastic opinion is very varied from it is highly encouraged to the point that any husband worth his salt should uh, make it, uh, you know, a principal part of his foreplay, you know. Otherwise, he's being parsimonious and stingy and so on to absolute prohibition. Mm. Basically, if you belong to, a, if you are a madhabi, you belong to a particular school of thought, mm. you would have to research your particular school of thought's authorities to navigate the whole thing and then make up your own mind. So actually, I think this variety of opinions actually <laughs> leaves it quite democratic in a sense. How would a sex talk show such as Dr. Heber's go down in this country? So, for example, if I were to start presenting my own sex talk show aimed at Muslims giving them frank sexual advice, do you think it would be well received? Brian? Hard to tell, really. I mean, <laughs> I, I, mean I, I do worry about some of this because, I mean, I think it's one way that religions can get very obsessed with minutiae yeah. of, of personal behaviour. Mm when uh, there's a danger of losing the, the bigger picture, really, which is about making sort of big moral choices mm. and spirituality and things like that. And in a way, I think that this kind of detail that the scholars are going yeah. into is a sign that they're actually losing their way a bit. Lukman? I think, um, I think it would be very popular, actually, amongst yeah, your younger generation of Muslims. And, you know, remember, the, the Muslim community in this country is a young community. Mm. The majority is a very young demographic. I mean, I do get the feeling generally that even though Muslims can learn about sex, that it's not really seen as something that you enjoy. Sex is just something that you have in your marriage. Yes, it is. No, I mean, I, <laughs> I think uh, one of the differences between Islam and Christianity, for example, is that the idea of pleasure being involved in sex is much stronger in Islam than it is in Christianity. If you take the extreme Christian Catholic view, then the only purpose of sex is to make babies. 
And you don't see that view nearly as strongly in Islam as you do in Christianity. I would agree with that. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the Muslim world or Muslims in general and the attitude towards sex traditionally has been a very healthy one. And indeed, you know, you have to go outside of the uh, Abrahamic faiths to Hinduism to find something comparable to the type of treatment of really sort of frank and candid treatment of, 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 of sexuality in Islam. You know, you have texts uh, written specifically about, you know, the art of sex. Okay. Well, thanks a lot to our studio guests, Brian Whitaker, Lukman Ali and Brooke Rogers. Thanks to you for listening. That was Islamophonic. It was produced by Francesca Panetta and it was presented by me, Riaz Atbutt. Until next week, wa alaikum assalam. And if you can't be good, be careful. Guardian Unlimited.